afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity, and that is how you're going to receive your uh, CME certificate. So make sure you um, either receive it in person or uh, it will be listed in the uh, chat section if if you're viewing live and if you're watching the recording it will be listed in the links icon in the description section of the video if you have a question please enter it into the Q&A chat and we'll make sure to ask um, our presenter at the end of the presentation and of course if you're in person we will hand you the microphone it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Singh Dr. Singh is a family medicine physician and currently serves as the Associate Program Director for the Family Medicine Residency here at Northeast Georgia Health System. With a rich background in medical education and clinical practice, Dr. Singh brings a wealth of experience to his current role. Previously, he held the position of core faculty member and clerkship director at Wellstar, Wellstar Kennestone Family Medicine Residency, where he also contributed significantly to the resident education. His commitment to medical training also extends to his prior role as a core faculty member at Spectrum Health Family Medicine Residency in Michigan. Dr. Singh's journey in medicine was shaped during his residency at Grant Medical Center, where he discovered his passion for working with patients dealing with substance use disorders. Join me in welcoming Dr. Singh. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys, Avi Singh, um, I'm going to be talking about substance use disorder uh, with you all today. Um, as Janine said, I have nothing to disclose, um, but I do want to start with an anecdote or a personal story of mine. So um, when I started my training at, uh, at Grant Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio, um, the Southern Ohio Valley at that time was very much hit by the um, opioid pandemic. So a lot of patients were addicted to heroin and other opiates. And when I first started taking care of them, I simply thought that the disease was something which is just lack of control or lack of self-control, right? So if one were to just control their behaviors, they should get better. Um, this stemmed a lot from my lack of education in addiction medicine. Um, and during medical school and, you know, my lack of training. But as I started taking care of these patients more and more, I started to realize that that is far from the case. And though lack of self-control is part of the disease process, it's not something that can be just controlled or turned on and off uh, by the patients. So September is National Recovery Month. Um, it started in 1989. It uh, is observance held for everyone who works in the field of addiction medicine. Um, addiction is very much a disease of isolation. So people are stigmatized for not, you know, being able to control their behaviors. Um, providers are not trained enough to take care of them. And that can lead to a stigma that um, can cause them to not receive the care. And we'll talk more about that later. But as you will see that you know, community and bringing these patients together is a huge part of taking care of them. And that is why I think, you know, it's important to keep bringing that up over and over again. So what are the objectives for today? So we will go over the DSM-5 criteria for um, substance use disorders. We'll identify the etiology and pathophysiology of alcohol use disorders and stimulant use disorders. 
um, will, along with opioid use disorder and benzodiazepine dis uh, use disorders. We'll describe the treatment options for each one of them. Uh, we'll look at the interprofessional team strategies to kind of help us and identify and discuss new challenges in substance use disorder. Um, my goal today is to sort of package little things for you guys to take back into your practices so that you can apply to your daily practice. I, nothing that I share today will be life-changing, but will hopefully give you a little tool guides that you can take to your practice and implement and use on a daily basis when you see these patients. Um, so let's get started. We'll talk about DSM-5. So in 2013, um, DSM-5 actually combined abuse and dependence criteria into one disorder. And they used four main categories to kind of think about when you were thinking of substance use um, or substance dependence. Um, they talked about loss of control. Um, they talked about social impairment, use despite negative consequence. And this is sort of the hallmark of what you would see in addiction and physiologic or pharmacologic changes. Now, the term use disorder does not mean that the patient has addiction. The term use disorder can also just be used if someone has just dependence. And as we kind of look more into the DSM-5 criteria, we'll see the significant difference between use and dependence. Um, I think use, abuse, or addiction, um, you know, if you're thinking abuse and addiction as a term, the, the hallmark is really sort of that risky use or, you know, um, use despite negative consequences. So that's something to consider. All right, so let's jump to the, the bottom of the section because I really want to clarify between substance dependence versus addiction. So dependence is tolerance. Dependence is your patient could be taking a medication on a daily basis that is prescribed to them and they're taking it as directed. Um, and if they don't take it, they can have negative consequences. Now, when I say this, people automatically think of opioids or benzodiazepines, but think of medications such as antiepileptics. If your patients are taking antiepileptics and if they stop taking it, there's a very high risk of them having seizures. So they are dependent on those medications. Think of your patients with diabetes who have you know, who are dependent on their insulin to prevent them from going into DKA. So dependence does not almost always mean addiction. And I think that is something for you to understand as you start to treat the diseases in your practices. But there are other factors that kind of come in and can change, you know, what use disorder looks like versus where it takes it for, to a different level from just dependence to addiction. So impaired control over substance use, you know, consuming substances large amounts, um, you know, it impairs your ability to fulfill major obligations at work or school um, or at even at home. Recurrent use in physically unsafe environments, those are sort of the criteria that you're looking for when you're trying to tease out if this is just dependence or if it is addiction or abuse, okay? All right, so, you can further break it down into three criteria: mild, moderate, and severe. Now, um, most of the times when your patients have mild disease uh, process, you can monitor them closely and make sure they're not progressing. They don't really require pharmacotherapy at this point, um, especially the ones who sort of fall into the pharmacological dependence area. So 
But if you're falling into the moderate severe criteria, you should start thinking, do they need more intervention? So do they need pharmacotherapy? Do they need psychotherapy? Do they need other approaches? And we'll look into what those other options are as we kind of go further. But that's sort of the criteria that you should look into. Why are we talking about this today? And in general, why are we having this conversation? Why is it the DEA requiring us to have you know, so many credits uh, required? So I think it's because of the prevalence of the disease process in our population, right? So 46.3 million people aged 12 or older met the DSM-5 criteria for substance use disorder, out of which 29.5 million people had alcohol use disorder and 24 million people have other substance use disorders. In 2021, the percentage of people aged 12 or older with substance use disorder was the highest among young adults aged 18 to 25, followed by the age 26 and older. And in 2021, this is pretty surprising, or maybe not as surprising, but 94% of the people who were aged 12 or older with substance use disorder did not receive any treatment. This shows, and, and I think we have kind of all known that, you know, in, um, during the pandemic years in 2020 and 2021, we saw an increase in overdose and substance use disorder in general. Um, I think it was in the news, it was everywhere, so we were talking about it. But this is sort of the number that you can see as the years have gone by, from 2016 to 2021, there has been a steady climb and sort of doubling of numbers significantly much more than previous years when it comes to substance use disorder. So I think it's important that we're thinking of substance use disorder as a chronic disease process that needs to be treated. And I think once we can reach that mindset, we'll be able to tackle it much better. All right, well, where do we start? I think just like any other disease process, you start by screening for the disorder, right? So. The USPSTF says we should screen everyone uh, by asking questions about unhealthy drug use, regardless of risk factors, um, and go from there. So anyone ages 12 and up, um, I will say, do I do this regularly? Probably not, you know? Uh, but it's not common practice, but maybe it should be common practice. There are different screening tools that are available. Um, I'm sure you have seen a handful of them. Um, I'm going to kind of suggest a couple of scenarios where they can be used and go from there. So in primary care setting during your physical, it's a quick screen which goes over four questions asking, you know, um, use of alcohol, tobacco, or non-medical use of prescription drugs or other illegal drugs is ideal. I think, you know, even in emergent settings, so like in emergency rooms, if an opioid is being prescribed or in urgent cares where you're thinking about prescribing a controlled substance to a patient. I think it's probably ideal to employ something similar to screen patients before we're prescribing those medications. And we'll see why that's important in a second. But there are other longer tools that are also available um, to further assess. So if you screen a patient and they, uh, you find out that they're at a higher risk, there are other tools that are available to you know, screen and see where exactly they fall in the severity and kind of rank them on the DSM-5 criteria. Um, and, you know, that kind of helps you to signal and diagnose the problem and then possibly look for treatment options or at least have some sort of intervention plan um, for that patient. 
There, for special populations, you know, uh, for pregnant patients, the 4P screening tool has a very high sensitivity for screening for substance use disorder. So there are lots of different options available. I think we just have to kind of see which one fits our boat and use them on a regular basis. And I think that will be the starting point of it. So what do we do once we have, you know, found someone with a screening? So let's say you screen someone, then they are negative. Great. You reinforce healthy behavior and you just move on. Um, but if they're positive, you can assess substance use and comorbidities. So you look at hazardous use, um, you know, if they are, are having hazardous use. So what is considered hazardous use? I would say hazardous use would be something which is periodical but is not dependent, dependence or, um, you know, and something like binge drinking um, can be considered hazardous use. So at that point, you can intervene with brief counseling and then an ongoing assessment. And we'll, we'll look at what brief intervention sort of looks like um, as we move forward. Um, substance abuse, if you're seeing substance abuse with the patient, you can look at brief counseling and negotiate a plan with them, right? Have them follow up closely. And if it, if it continues, you can look at pharmacotherapy options. And if they have clear dependence, you can look for counseling, refer them from treatment, and then use pharmacotherapy, right? So you have tools that we can use um, to kind of help you with this. So um, I'm going to do a very small um, slide on motivational interviewing because I know there's a talk later on um, which will dive really deeply into motivational interviewing. I am definitely not an expert in motivational interviewing, um, but I will say that I view motivational interviewing as a procedure. Um, just like any other procedure, you kind of have to plan for it if you're walking into the room when you're thinking of a patient um, that may benefit from it. Um, I <clears throat> tend to walk in the room and use a lot of these sort of uh, techniques that are mentioned here, and then we kind of go from there. So, you know, um, resisting the writing reflex, using to make sure that, you know, you're talking about pros and cons, reflections, affirmations. So using a lot of those techniques. And it is not very natural for us to use motivational interviewing into our day-to-day -day practice, right? Think about it. You're going into the ED to admit someone with shortness of breath with exertion. You're not using motivational interviewing there. You're trying to find out what's wrong with the patient, and then you're trying to treat the disease process, right? Um, addiction is not something that, you know, you can be inquisitive about right off the bat. So it, it tends to do well when you can involve your patient in the care and you'll see better results. So I think that's where motivational interviewing tends to be, uh, tends to play a huge role. And treating it, it like what it is, is a procedure, does tend to help because then it kind of gives you a little bit of time to kind of back up and say, okay, I take a second here. This is a different environment. I don't have to have my inquisitive brain on. I don't need a differential diagnosis here. I don't need to know why they're using substances. I just need to know where they are and how I can help them. And I think if you change those gears, you'll see that a lot of these behaviors will become more naturally. Um, and above all, it's all about practice. So the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. If you don't do it, you're not going to get good at it. So that's the crux of it. Um, we talked about interdisciplinary teams. So I think um, I mentioned that you know, addiction is very much a disease of isolation. And I think finding resources in your area where you, know, you can connect and plug in patients is very important, right? So um, AA.org, NA.org 
you know, if you go to their website and just put in the zip code, they'll list all different places where people can go and receive care. Um, smart recovery is another option which uses another way of dealing with addiction. These are all 12-step models or, or peer-led groups, but what they kind of allow is people to form a community, and I think that's vital um, in their growth. Um, medically supervised detox, um, you know, we, I know we do that at Laurelwood. We send patients there from time to time, so that's a good resource for us. Um, outpatient treatment programs, so residential treatment programs. So knowing what's available in your area and, you know, connecting patients through that kind of allows them to get care. Um, and I think that's vital to, um, you know, this disease process. All right, we're going to jump into alcohol use disorder. So um, lifetime prevalence in the U.S. is about 29.1%. We just saw how high about, you know, two-thirds of patients with substance use disorder also struggle with alcohol use disorder. It accounts to about 88,000 yearly U.S. deaths. 4,300 of these are youth. Um, it's the third leading cause of preventable death in the U.S. And um, when <clears throat> considering legal and medical expenses um, costs, it costs about $223.5 billion um, annually. And that was from 20 data from 2015 to 2018. So with inflation, you can probably double that. Um, so what is the neurobiology of alcohol use disorder? It is a brain disease. And I think this is where... Um, things start to change a little bit, right? So I think um, I opened with the story that, you know, I saw um, substance use disorder as very much a lack of self-control problem, but it's much more than that. We're kind of dive into that a little bit. But this focuses on alcohol use disorder, but this is the primary point of how most substances um, tend to affect our brain. So only about 10% of those people who experiment with addictive substances will go on to develop substance use disorder. While unhealthy choices are necessary to develop addiction, they are not sufficient, um, which is also true for all your chronic diseases, hypertension, diabetes, etc. Um, genetics, including the impact of one's environment on gene expression, um, account for 46 to 60% of persons of risk of the disease or of addiction. So how does it work? Well, it has to do, do with the reward pathway, with the initial positive reinforcement. Enforcement. So if during early use, you'll see patients will have dopamine release and opioid peptide activity um, in the VTA and the nucleus accumbens causing euphoria, and they have increased GABA and decreased glutamate causing calming sensation. But with chronic use, what tends to happen is you tend to see GABA depletion causing anxiety and cessation and decreased volume of the prefrontal and orbitofrontal cortex. Um, which have a role in impulsivity and decision-making. And I think that's vital, right? So I think you're, if you're losing parts of the brain and if your brain chemistry is being changed, your behaviors start to change, right? And I think that's the crux of the disease. It's not a lack of self-control problem. The lack of self-control comes because the brain has been modified. So how do we support it? Um, and, you know, how do we get them out of this cycle is the question. So... Um, I wanted to put this slide in here um, just to kind of show in 2020, the CDC and the U.S. Department of Agriculture said one drink or less in a day for women and then two drinks or less in a day for men is the drinking in moderation, quote unquote. Um, those are the drinking sizes um, to consider. So 
how do we treat alcohol use disorder? So a meta-analysis um, shows that uh, people who receive psychosocial intervention um, had significantly reduced alcohol um, use consumption. Brief intervention was consistent with reduced chances of exceeding recommended drinking limits, reduced heavy use of uh, six to 12 month follow-up, and in pregnant women, increased likelihood of abstinence during pregnancy. Patients who are screened with counseling have reported receiving higher quality in primary care. So knowing this, you know, what does brief intervention look like? So brief intervention in primary care, you know, can, it's just a basically a five-step process, right? So I think when you introduce a patient, you have gone through the screening, it's okay to ask them and say, hey, is it okay if we talk about, you know, whatever issue that you're having today? And I think asking for that permission really allows for trauma-based informed care, right? Gives patients that space so that they can talk about this disease process with you. Um, you know, and then you ask them, have you ever had to lie about people about how much you use, or have you ever feel the need to use um, to to engage in more? Um, provide feedback and advice. You know, some of this will be your motivational interviewing um, conversation, um, and then listen for readiness and confidence, and then provide further information. Right? This is what is brief intervention, and it's almost like a procedure. Right? So I think like when you're thinking about it, when you're using this disease approach. I think it's okay to think of these steps before you walk into the room of how you would intervene. And I think that will help you a lot. So the Mesa Grande results, which looked at alcohol use disorder treatment options, said brief intervention was the number one thing that helped people with alcohol use disorder. Educational lectures, films, and groups were 46. Um, alcoholism counseling was 45, psychotherapy was 44, you know, pharmacotherapy was three to four, and then motivational enhancement was two. So this kind of gives you a range of, you know, there were 46 things, so I didn't want to put all 46 things in here, but I think I wanted to highlight that, like, a small intervention can have greater impact. And, you know, I think taking that time is important, especially when you identify these patients. So I think, you know, so far, if you look at substance use disorder, and in particular alcohol use disorder, things to consider is once you have screened a patient and they have, po they have come back positive, just a brief intervention can lead to a lot more results than you think. All right, let's talk about pharmacological interventions for alcohol use disorder. So um, we're going to talk about more so in a post-detox phase conversation. Um, and we're going to look at FDA-approved medications for pharmacotherapy and then off-label use. Um, there are three medications that are FDA-approved. You have naltrexone, acamprosate, or camprol, or disulfiram, or antabuse. Um, your off-label pharmacotherapy is gabapentin, topiramate, baclofen, and zofran. Um, so again, different people have different approaches of how they use the medication. My approach is I kind of use them differently of which different phase they're on. So naltrexone, I tend to use more so when people are still using alcohol um, or if they tend to have sort of binge episodes of drinking. Um, it, it tends to have that opioid um, antagonist activity and that has you know, shown um, good data as far as reducing alcohol use. Acamprosate tends to work more so in 
patients. Um, it tends to work on more on the has a, more of a GABA activity. So I tend to use it more for my patients who have come out of detox programs right away, and um, they tend to have good results. Um, things to consider with a campersate is it is a three times a day dosing. So it's 666 milligrams, three times a day dosing. So that's something that patients have to get used to it. Um, disulfiram, I don't use disulfiram as often. Um, I try not to just because it's a medication that, you know, if a patient takes it, they will have negative consequences um, with it. So, and if they do, they can skip it and still drink. So I just don't think that it, it significantly uh, affects um, how they receive care. So I tend to not use it. And your patients can get really sick from it and end up in the ER. And that's something they probably don't want to in the first place. So um, I tend not to use that one as much. Um, I will usually combine my off-label medications with some of the FDA-approved medications, depending on what symptoms they're having, and then kind of um, do adjunct treatment based on that and go from there. All right, we'll um, dive right into opioid use disorder. So um, opioid use disorder is something that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I think there is a lot of it, and we don't do enough to treat it. Um, so approximately 6.7 to 7.6 million adults in the U.S. are currently living with opioid use disorder. Um, opioids were involved in 80,000 overdose deaths in 2021, and it accounts for two-thirds of deaths from overdoses. Um, opioid use is 10 times more fatal um, with use in general population, and pharmacotherapy can reduce mortality in opioid use while decreasing HIV and hepatitis C cases. So how do you treat OUD? Um, I think you go through your initial steps, right? So you have screened your patient. You have identified that they're kind of falling into that moderate to severe criteria, and you have done a brief intervention. Um, you have looked at, you know, your uh, local institutions that can, you know, you can connect them with and provide support. And then you have medication. So unlike alcohol use disorder or some of the other use disorders that will kind of fall into the today, you'll see that opioid use disorder responds best to medication treatment. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> if you look at it there, you have modalities that, are, that can be used and tend to work really, really well. So in acute withdrawal, you can use Suboxone or buprenorphine and naloxone or methadone. And for relapse prevention, first line is Suboxone um, and methadone. And then you have other options like clonidine and um, Vivitrol as second-line options for um, withdrawal and relapse prevention. Um, knowing this, we can kind of do a one-on-one comparison. So if you look at it, um, one of the things that I kind of want to focus on is um, doses. So most studied, you know, um, compared buprenorphine and naltrexone to methadone, and they said the treatment retention was superior um, in low-dose uh, buprenorphine use um, equivalent to high-dose buprenorphine use when they looked at methadone and they compared it head-to-head. -head. Um, and at dose greater than 16 milligrams, the retention was equivalent to methadone higher than naltrexone. So a year before this, and I think this is part of it, is that to prescribe buprenorphine and naloxone, um, you had to have a special DEA, an ex-DEA, you had to require a waiver. That program is now done, right? Now anyone can prescribe buprenorphine. Um, and I think, 
you know, you should feel empowered to do so, right? So if you are going to prescribe opioids for your patients um, with chronic pain or just acute pain, I think I would want to empower you to prescribe buprenorphine, which is much safer um, for patients who may have opioid use disorder because um, they're most likely to benefit from this than anything else. Now, there are protocols to keep in mind. You can put them in withdrawal, but these patients have already been in withdrawal before. They have probably already taken Suboxone off the street. So that is something to keep in mind. And we just need to be more um, vigilant about treating these patients because, like you remember, it's 10 times more fatal and two-thirds of the death that happen happen in the case of opioid use disorder. Um, Vivitrol um, is a really good option. Um, it can really induce um, withdrawal in patients, so you have to make sure that they have not been taking the uh, any substances for at least seven days, which can be a challenging process for most patients, right, to wait seven days before they can start um, Vivitrol. But it does tend to have really good data, um, especially um, uh, IM Vivitrol, the long-acting version, tends to uh, do really, really well. Um, sorry, naltrexone. Um, benzodiazepine disorder. So 30.2 uh, million people have been reported taking benzodiazepines. Uh, misuse of the drug accounts for 17.2% of all benzodiazepine use. Uh, from 2014 to 2016, 48% of the estimated 65 million office visits where benzodiazepine was, were prescribed were PCP visits, and the prescriptions were continued prescriptions. That is something to reflect um, when you are prescribing benzodiazepines next. Um, substance use disorder is the most significant risk factor for misuse. So um, I have reviewed PDMP when I'm doing benzodiazepines, but I will be the first to say I don't always screen them for substance use, use disorder when I am prescribing benzodiazepines. So that's probably something that uh, needs to be part of my practice change and will be hopefully yours as well. Um, so what is benzodiazepine safe prescribing? So it is safe for short-term use, which is less than one month. Um, physicians should assess risk factors for misuse and um, adverse effect potential. Patients with alcohol use disorder or who take opioids chronically should not take the benzodiazepines um, together. For patients who already use benzodiazepines chronically, physicians should sh do shared decision-making um, about, you know, risks and deprescribing and alternative options when you're dealing with these patients, especially for older patients who are older than 65 years. For patients who continue using benzodiazepines, frequent visits should occur for continued risk and benefit assessment. I know during our NGPG provider meeting, we talked about our opioid tool and how we should make sure these patients are, you know, coming into our practice regularly. Given the fact that, you know, most of those prescriptions were written by PCPs, I think I would encourage all of us to be a little bit more vigilant when we're also prescribing benzodiazepines. So when and how to taper benzodiazepine? Now, this is very challenging to do, and it's also very time-consuming. Um, Deprescribing benzodiazepine is a multifaceted approach and should be a um, goal for uh, patients who you think need it. Um, slow tapering over weeks to months is often needed for patients who have been taking benzodiazepines chronically to minimize withdrawal symptoms uh, to treat underlying disorders. And be mindful that if they have been taking this medication for 30 plus years, 
you may not be able to take them off of them off of it entirely. So you just have to be slow and you have to be mindful of how much you're prescribing and how long you're prescribing it for. Incorporating behavioral interventions such as cognitive behavior therapy improves deprescribing outcomes. So um, it is, like I said, it's a long-term, time-consuming, and complex process. Patient education um, has a potential benefit in tapering and can increase the likelihood of success. And evidence is lacking, obviously, in which tapering regimen is the best. So the tapering regimen that you come up with your patient is going to be the, the tapering regimen for that patient. Um, gradual tapers will lead to less withdrawals, and patients are more likely to um, stick with it. So dose reduction percentages should be individualized, right? I think talking to your patients about that they may experience um, withdrawal before deprescribing or lowering doses is important. Um, I think if they have a very high maintenance, maintenance dose, you can decrease up to 25% initially, but with lower dosages, 5 to 15% reduction is appropriate and um, should be the first step. Adjustment requires flexibility and often need four weeks before the next taper. Um, if your patients tend to do have um, withdrawal symptoms, it is okay to back off the taper and just keep them at the current dose. Um, you'll start to see that these symptoms will become more pro problematic as you start to get at the lower end of the taper. Um, the withdrawal symptoms are pretty common of what you would expect. So you will see in mild to moderate agitation with irritability, loss of appetite, myalgias, headaches, sleep disturbance, and um, rare withdrawal symptoms. So if high dosages, more than 10 milligrams of diazepine equivalent daily, you can see diaphoresis, palpitations, panic attacks, seizures, or tremors. That is not to say that if your patients are on very small dosages of medication, if they're acutely, they stop taking it, they may not experience any of these symptoms. So it's kind of hard to tell if which criteria, which category they're going to fall into. It sort of depends on, you know, their presenting symptoms. So you just have to be mindful, really listen to your patients and go from there. All right, stimulant use disorder. So <clears throat> stimulants range widely from uh, meth to cocaine. Um, fentanyl is a contaminant which is very common with stimulant use, and we'll talk about fentanyl in a bit. Um, there are no FDA-approved medications for stimulant use disorder, and it has a high risk for psychosocial injury and um, uh, personal injury. So illicit use is often intermittent for particular situations, um, most likely for studying, partying, sex, uh, with less of a withdrawal syndrome than other substances like benzos, alcohols, um, opioids, and such. So they don't tend to have the withdrawal symptoms that you would expect from opiates. So intermittent use is pretty uh, common. They're often used by um, sniffing, injecting, or smoking a particular substance. Um, hospitalizations for meth-related heart failure um, is on rise. So... Stimulant intoxication. So at low levels, patients can have increased alertness and um, energy, and they can have irritability and decreased appetite. But at high levels, they can have panic attacks, hypervigilance. They can have delusions, hallucinations, and even psychosis um, when they're presenting to your care. Um, stimulant withdrawal is often not life-threatening, like um, benzodiazepines or alcohol withdrawal. 
Um, they may have some dysphoria. They may have depression, anxiety, um, some aches and pains and craving. Um, you may see cases of rhabdomyolysis related to uh, stimulant use. Um, it can last for days to weeks or even months. And um, psychosis um, related to um, stimulant use uh, disorder is very hard to treat because the changes um, in the brain has been seen to last beyond a year at times, um, even with just once or um, twice use. So what is um, the way to treat it? You obviously have to screen your patients. Um, so we'll go back to the screening um, slide again and kind of think about that. But then it is estimated that about 25% of patients who use stimulant use disorder, they're using to sort of suppress some other comorbid conditions. So like anxiety, depression, or ADHD. And I think seeing if all those um, disorders are being accounted for and taken care for is very important. So that is something to um, think about. There, um, there are a couple of non-pharmacological approaches to um, treat um, stimulant use disorder, so harm reduction. Again, motivational interviewing your patients to talk about harm reduction and um, going from there, you can help educate the patients and um, reduce the technique. Or something, or using contingency management. So contingency management um, is uh, rewarding achievements or goals through positive reinforcement uh, enforcement of goals with incentives. Um, so there have been studies in sort of the Pennsylvania, Appalachia Mountain area, and um, in Southern Ohio Valley where they looked at treating patients with contingency management where they would reward them for being abstinent from drugs. And um, it was some sort of monetary value, so like a $25 gas card or something as simple as that. And it was very effective. Obviously, it is not well reimbursed, um, but it is very effective. Number needed to treat was three. So um, those studies have shown really good responses for patients. Um, there are no FDA-approved medications currently in the market for uh, pharmacological treatment of uh, stimulant use disorder. Uh, well, butrin and naltrexone, the, which is the injectable version, the Vivitrol combined, are showing some early promise, but um, that is all there is as far as treatment goes. Long-acting uh, stimulants like using methadone for opioid use disorders have not been shown to be effective, and remeron, which is mirtazapine and topiramate, have limited data of effectiveness as, as well. Um, I wanted to talk about fentanyl for... Um, for a little bit and kind of talk about, you know, what it impacts or how it impacts our patients. So overdose-related deaths involving um, synthetic opioids, um, excluding methadone, in 2021 were nearly 23 times the number in 2013. Um, pretty much if your patient is using um, methamphetamines or any kind of stimulants or heroin or opioids, it is pretty much 100% contaminated with fentanyl. The 100% of the supply is contaminated with fentanyl. So what that does is it increases the risk of dying from um, overdose even higher. Um, I think, you know, when we were talking about those brief intervention and kind of assessing your patients for readiness, I think if they're not ready, what else can you offer to your patients? I think we kind of start to run into that um, so you can offer them fentanyl test strips, right? So what do fentanyl test strips do? Um, they basically test the medication or the drug that they're going to use to see if it, is, if it has fentanyl. And if it does, can it be 
um, you know, they probably should not use it and go from there. I think this is a very good preventive measure to offer to your patients. You know, it was illegal in pretty much, it was illegal in Georgia until 2022 because it was considered a drug paraphernalia, but that has been reversed and you can, people can go and purchase fentanyl test strips and kind of um, have them. Prescribe them, them naloxone or Nar Narcan. Um, it's available over the counter now and making sure that your patients are aware of it, their family members are aware of it is important and you know should be um, considered. So um, there is a new contaminant um, that has, it's increasing over the years um, as far as the drug supply goes. So since you know we talked about fentanyl, it's also uh, fair that we talk about xylazine or trank um, in um, our drug uh, policy. So it was first synthesized in 1962 for use as an animal sedative. Um, <clears throat> it comes in liquid form or IV form. It acts as a central and peripheral alpha-2 agonist causing um, strong uh, sympatholytic effect. So it was initially first designed to treat blood pressure um, in people, and then they realized that the people were having really bad side effects, so the drug was never used. Um, the side effects include CNS depression, shallow breathing, bradypnea, apnea, bradycardia, hypotension, skin ulcerations, lesion, abscesses, and hyperglycemia. Um, can think of uh, your patients being on clonidine or presidex or overdosing on clonidine or presidex, and that's what Trank does with skin ulcerations. Um, it goes by the street name Trank, and when it's mixed with opioids, um, heroin or fentanyl, it is called Trank Dope. Um, illicit drug manufacturers cut fentanyl with other drugs to produce a similar high of heroin um, so that the, uh, with the cost similar to fentanyl. Um, and then xylazine is being cut with fentanyl, heroin, and cocaine in the mid-2000 and its prevalence has increased in the past three years. Um, and it is easy to buy, right? You can go online and purchase xylazine because it is not a controlled substance. Yet there is a bill um, on the floor to make it a controlled substance, but it is not a controlled substance right now. So it is very easy to purchase. Um, what does the xylazine use presentation kind of look like? Well, there is no designed safe dose for humans. Um, it has a very fast onset of action. Most people will come in showing signs of opioid overdose and they will have bradycardia, hyperglycemia, necrotic skin lesions along with hypotension. Um, the necrotic skin lesions are sort of the hallmark of the treatment. They are caused by, um, or sorry, the, the disease. Um, it's caused by injecting and missing a vein causing local capillary uh, vasoconstriction and it causes tissue necrosis and infection. Um, and withdrawal symptoms are very similar um, to what you would see in a patient who has been taking clonidine and may have just stopped suddenly. So hypertension, anxiety, depressed mood, um, and body aches. There's no reversal agent to treat an acute intoxication. Um, Narcan, be, Narcan can be used for when it's mixed with other opioids and then supportive and symptomatic care for presenting um, symptoms is what's recommended at this point. These are my resources. That's it. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Singh. Yeah. Where can we tell our patients to get the fentanyl test strips? So the Fulton Department of Public Health has them. Um, I don't 
you'll have to go to the Department of Public Health and see if it's available there. I am pretty sure it can be purchased online as well. Um, there are different barber shops in the Fulton County area that actually carry the test strips um, and will put it out for people to take. So it is a very known thing and, and it's, you know, since it has been disbanded, people are using it pretty um, commonly. Thank you, Dr. Singh. Great presentation. I was just wondering, will the xylexane be on UDS? Or like, how do we test for that? Yeah, there is no test for it. Unless you're doing a test for it, um, you can't really find it. So it's not going to be something that you can see on a regular drug screen. So if your patient is presenting with those symptoms, you can um, assume that they have, um, they're using it, or you can ask them about it because they know. Hey, uh, great presentation. Thanks so much. Um, on your slide on FDA and non-FDA approved uh, medications for alcohol withdrawal. Yeah. So we see in the inpatient setting a lot of folks that come in um, due to like DTs and then we end up getting them out. For one re reason or another, placement isn't really an option, but they're willing to try something as far as medication. Yeah. Is in that setting, so not necessarily in the outpatient, but actually discharging them with hopes of follow-up, is there a specific regimen that you would recommend? Yeah, so I tend to use Librium tapers for my patients who are not cirrhotics because um, Librium has a very long half-life, so it's a safer medication that you can kind of taper them off on and go from there. Uh, for my patients with cirrhosis, it becomes trickier because um, it can last really long and they can have a lot of sort of sedation-related um, symptoms. There is no sort of effective taper, depending on how much they have needed um, or, you know, on your CO protocol, you can sort of gestalt it and go from there. I, I don't have a really good answer, but I usually sort of see where they are and then, you know, um, how much Ativan or Librium they're requiring and then go from there. Um, often, if I have patients who don't have cirrhosis and they're coming in with alcohol use and they have previous history of um, you know, um, confusion or um, delusions with it or even seizures, I would probably start, start them on Librium to begin with and then kind of see how they're responding to it and go from there. Yeah. Thank you for the presentation. Um, you recently mentioned the providing fentanyl strips for patients who are not ready to commit to treatment yet. Do you have any other recommendations for those kind of patients? Um, I think like, you know, um, needle use is a big one, right? So I think HIV and hep C is a very prevalent disease in that population. So safe needle use is something that, you know, you should um, always recommend to your patients. Um, screening them from, uh, for HIV and uh, hep C is important. And then, you know, offering PrEP as an option, right? So um, it will reduce their risk of having HIV. So I think those are some of the things that you can do to kind of help them um, and be more successful. Thank you. We do have one online. Um, Dr. Huntley, what process do you refer adolescents that are showing signs of substance abuse? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think, you know, I don't have a real great answer there, but I think we have to look into um, what resources are available in the community and then go from there. Um, I wish I had a better answer for you, Dr. Huntley, but I probably will call you first. I was just wondering, same on, on this same slide, when will you combine the FDA-approved and the off-label therapy? I think it depends on a lot of times of what their symptoms are. So, you know, naltrexone and gabapentin I'll use commonly depending on where they are with their disease process. If they're having, um, you know, they're very early and they're having those binge episodes and they say, hey, I just have binge episodes, I'll probably use naltrexone more. And, you know, they're showing 
cravings even on top of it, then I'll probably augment with gabapentin and go from there. So it depends on the symptoms they're presenting, you know, and, and go from there. Top, uh, Topamax is another good agent for reducing cravings and um, can be used, so. Excellent presentation, Dr. Singh. Thank you. Thank you.